Intelligent Threads, the most advanced wearable technology on the market. This revolutionary product releases engaged muscles holding your body out of structural balance. The results are legendary, improving posture, sleep, and relaxation while decreasing pain. Go to IntelligentThreads.com today for more info. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Brandon Collins. He's an associate adjunct professor, part of the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. He's a lead scientist at Berkeley Forest, and all this is under the purview of uh, UC Berkeley in California. So we're going to talk about fire dynamics and forest management. So, Brandon, thank you for coming. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get interested in fire management? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't, you know, I I can't trace it to like an aha moment when I sort of figured, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I, I, when I do think about it, I, there were a couple of things that kind of imprinted me and I'll bet you they sort of guided me to where I am. But I remember, I think I was, I don't know, maybe 12 years old or or something when um, we had a, a wildfire and I live in a pretty urban area. I lived in Alameda, California at that point in time, East Bay. And there was a fire in the Oakland Hills. And it was it was pretty eye-opening to me to, to imagine that, you know, something could get sort of out of control in a relatively urban area like that. And it was, you know, just shocked me, frankly, that we could see some of the effects of that fire even in Alameda. Like I remember being at a football field and ash was falling on the football field. And it was actually like when I held it in my hand, it was a it was like a book page. I think you could see the print on it. It was super strange. So yeah, that, that was obviously had some, some effect. And then I think another thing obviously is my dad had a degree in forestry. He never actually really went into the field of forestry, but, you know, through experiences, you know, backpacking or camping with my dad. And then even in talking about that fire in the Oakland Hills, it got super interesting to me. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, that must have had an in influence on me. But again, like I said, it didn't just click right away when I was 12 and said, oh, I want to be a forester. So so that that's some of the background. So what are some of the, the typical duties or what's a day like in, uh, you know, someone's uh, whose job it is to understand and prevent fires? I don't know if you're you're more in the academic end or if you're also out in the field a lot. But what does it look like? What's your day look like? I do tend to be more on the academic end, although I really try to engage as much as possible with people that are sort of on the more frontline management. And that would be more of on the forest management side rather than the actual incident management on a fire per se. But I, you know, a typical day for me is sadly a lot of it is sitting behind a computer, but it, you know, it, it does vary quite a bit. You know, we interacting with graduate students teaching classes, interacting with colleagues, having meetings, many of which now are, of course, are on Zoom. But, it, you know, th- those meetings oftentimes are with colleagues, like my forest management colleagues, some, you know, 
up in the Sierras, for example, I tend to work in the Northern Sierra on the Plumas National Forest quite a bit, but I also work in Yosemite and also in the Sierra National Forest. So it, it does vary quite a bit and, and it does matter to what season we're in, right? If, we're, if it's the summer season and I tend to do a lot more field work in the summer and we have field crews largely made up of undergraduate students that are employed by us for the summer to, to do field measurements. So we do get out quite a bit. It's a really as far as what I'm, you know, as far as I see it, it's such an ideal job. It combines, you know, some really, you know, down to earth sort of connection to to managing natural resources, right? Managing forests. And then also some kind of more intellectual pieces, you know, with regard to conducting science, interpreting, you know, results from analyses and trying to connect those analyses to, you know, what you know, how managers might actually use that as opposed to just having, you know, some article sitting in a, in a journal somewhere. But what are you trying to figure out about, about fire management? Are you trying to quantify like how they start or how to control them? Like what are some of the nuances of what you do? I think the biggest piece is really how to manage forests so that they can withstand fire. And it, it's kind of weird. It's, we, we struggle with this weird balance, if you will, that it's not, you know, a lot of our our job and, and a lot, frankly, the goal of forest management and, and fire prone forests is not really to eliminate fire. Now, that might not really sit with sit well with a lot of people because their homes might be near forests and they don't want fire at all. But the reality is, I think it's impossible to remove fire entirely from these fire prone forests, you know, before we started messing with forests, they were burning really frequently. And and, in many cases, they were, the burning was augmented by ignitions from indigenous peoples, but nonetheless, fire was such a common, such a common process going on in these forests. It shaped them. In fact, it's really, we're starting to understand that forests entirely depend on, on fire, but it's, it's the type of fire that that matters and so a lot of our research is geared towards trying to you know manage forests so that it's able to tolerate the right type of fire and and then have the right kind of responses you know after fire and we're we, we're a long ways off from that frankly and it's not i don't mean from a science standpoint but we're a long ways off having the forest in that condition well so what are the benefits of fire and uh, to what level should it be controlled? Like, what are some of the factors that would tell you, you know, this place actually does need a fire to clear it out? So the benefits of fire are that we we have generally fairly productive forests, meaning that they are constantly growing. Uh, they're, they're constantly, you know, adding new foliage on existing trees or new trees. Young trees are establishing. And fire is a little bit of a check on the system, right? To keep it from getting, you know, from getting accumulation of, of plant material, oftentimes what we call fuel on the ground, that accumulation is, is held in check by relatively frequent fire. And fire also actually limits the density of forests so that there is less competition among individual trees. You might say, well, why, why would you want that? And, and the reason for that is that under drought periods, which are, you know, is a fairly common occurrence in in the West. And under drought, trees are are, are stressed, and likely um, they will uh, be invaded by some some pathogen or or some insect. And if you are able to thin out the trees, or, or fire were operating in a manner that kept tree density in check, 
individual trees would have more vigor and would be able to to withstand some of those attacks from pathogens and insects. In the current case, in many of our forests that don't have fire and are certainly, you know, way too dense, there's no, that tree vigor is not there. And we've seen some massive, massive mortality events in our forests in recent years that have really put a spotlight on, on this issue. Intelligent Threads produces results within seconds of wear. Tested over the past seven years for maximum effectiveness and quality of life improvements. Think about an 80% better REM and deep sleep per night. This revolutionary technology is the game changer everyone needs. Go to intelligentthreads.com today. So, okay, so a fire will, will allow certain trees to have, again, more growing space, more access to resources, counterintuitively. So if fire doesn't come, I guess you'll end up with a swath of forest where everything is kind of barely hanging on so that if something does happen, the whole thing gets wiped out. It, it is, right. And, and so in the past, we would always just, you know, the, the looming threat was when a fire does come, it's going to, you know, it's really going to be destructive. And like you said, it's going to kill all the trees. But we didn't really have experience with just drought alone being, you know, enough of an agent to then precipitate large scale mortality until the the massive drought we had um, in the Sierra Nevada in 2012 through 2016, where it wasn't really fire that was doing it. It was it was, you know, drought and then bark beetles that were killing large, large patches of trees over a massive amount of area. And so now we, we have... <laughs> This, you know, that that threat is not just about, oh, when wildfire comes, it's about, oh, when the next drought comes and people, you know, people know how frequent drought can be. So I, I think that it's it's both those pieces right now. And I think that we, we have some ability to manage our forest looking, you know, toward looking at the past as sort of a reference, if you will, for what kind of densities would be sort of sustainable and resilient is the word we often use a lot, you know, in, under that drought and, and future wildfire scenario. So what are some of the practices that can help forests like clearing underbrush or there is really, yeah, there's really two, right. And, and there's different levels of it. There's different intensities, there's combinations or whatever, but there's really two methods, right? You can either cut trees, you can do it, you know, cut them mechanically with a chainsaw or with, with equipment, or you can burn them. And it often cases, you know, the one or the other seems to make more sense, right? Like if you're around homes, you're not probably thrilled about the idea of using fire, at least right, right away until you can get the forest in a better condition. So it makes more sense to do some kind of mechanical removal of, you know, cephalon, uh, you know, smallish trees that are in that understory. And even frankly, you know, oftentimes we, we, you know, we oversimplify by saying, yeah, clear out the underbrush, so to speak, but it really is, we're at a point now where we need to be doing pretty extensive thinning. And, and that thinning is different. You know, a lot of people will conflate that with logging and saying, oh, you just want to pull trees out to, to send them down to the mill. And I think that the, the difference there is what you leave behind. If you leave the largest trees behind, then you're doing what might be considered an ecologically appropriate thinning. If you're taking the largest trees, then you're just really doing a timber grab and you're not doing anything for restoration. And, and it's really not consistent with the ecology. So we do have, we struggle, you know, there is a pushback about anything mechanical because of that removal, but it, it, hopefully we're getting over some of those, those, those speed bumps. Well, what's best if, you know, what does it depend on? What are the factors? So there's an area where there's trees, big and small, young and old, uh, which ones are the better ones to take and why should you leave the old ones, the big fat ones, or just, you know, 
or should you take the big ones and the small ones? Well, in our current condition, you know, given some of the history we have of, of true logging, right? Not, not ecologically based, but just true timber-based logging, we really do have a deficit of large trees. If you even compare it to, to you know, historical conditions where we have a lot more trees on the landscape now, but, but many fewer large trees. And it, and it turns out that those large trees are, are, have often been described as the ecological backbone of these forests. And it's not just about, you know, how they look. Um, they are kind of cool, right? It's neat to see a big tree and, and they really have this charismatic feeling to them. But it's really about the other attributes that, that those big trees provide, in, you know, from an ecosystem standpoint, right? The habitat conditions that a large tree provides, the resistance that a large tree has to fire. Those, those large trees have really thick bark. Their crowns are, are well off the ground, so they're not really vulnerable to fires burning along the surface. But so that's the thing. So so to go back to your question, the issue is, yes, leave the largest trees, leave the oldest trees. Some of the oldest trees, older and larger, they tend to be the same. But some of the older trees are actually kind of interesting because they have odd growth forms. And some of those growth forms make these really neat cavities for wildlife species, um, the California spotted owl is one we tend to focus on a lot. Pacific, Pacific fisher is another one. And they like these little cavities that really develop in these kind of gnarled old trees. So yes, I, I think the ideal prescription would be to, to leave the largest and the oldest trees, vary it a bit too, by the way. We don't want, you know, uh, we're learning more and more that, that variability is, is a pretty important characteristic of these forests to serve these different guilds of wildlife species in the habitats they require. So, I mean, we can get into more of that if, you, if you'd like. I, I don't know if that answers your question enough. Well, when you, all right, so when you say variability, what do you mean? So thicker trees and thinner, younger and older, what, what else compromises, I mean, comprises variability? Yes. So the answer, yes, is, is yes, some thick areas, right? It's okay to have some areas of, of dense trees, even if they're, they're young and small, because those provide these, these dense cover patches for some prey. They also provide thermal regulation for some animals that don't do well in, in the, the extremes, either the extreme cold or the extreme heat. So that, that condition, I mean, it, it's often, again, simplified. They either rethin it all or it's all going to burn up. But that, that's not necessarily true. It's really about the scale, the, sort of the, the fuels problem, right? If you have these small patches where you have high densities, they're just not that vulnerable because they might be surrounded by a lot of areas with low fuel conditions where it's really difficult to vector, you know, severe fire into these denser patches. So it's a, it's a variability, meaning... Yes, a mix of, of ages of trees, but also spatially variable where you're, you, might, you might actually intentionally retain patches, you know, maybe let's say on the order of a quarter acre or something like that of dense forest. And you might actually open up an area, you know, have an opening about the size of a quarter acre to allow for new establishment of, of trees or even shrubs. And, and that's okay. A lot of times we think, oh, shrubs are bad. They just, you know, they make fire more intense, but it just... I think that that variable piece at small spatial scales where we're not having giant patches of any one particular condition, I think that's something we're trying to strive towards. Um, what about natural features? You know, gullies, gulches, ravines, um, ponds, lakes, et cetera. How do all these things 
impact fire? Well, they, they do. They certainly can, can inhibit or in some cases can enhance spread. Um, if you think about it, you know, if you have some local, let's say, depressions where water tends to pool, and I don't mean surface water, but just where there's maybe higher soil moisture, those kinds of areas can support more vegetation, even if fire was burning, you know, at, you know, burning fairly freely on the landscape. They just might be cooler and a little, you know, with slightly higher fuel moistures where they may have been missed by, by fire. If, even if fire was frequent on the landscape, there's some areas that are missed. And now that even happens in today's fires. But so you can imagine that these little features on the landscape and some of which you mentioned too, you know, rock or steep gullies, some of those could be true barriers to fire spread. But some of the other features, you know, could be, could enhance fire spread where you have, where they naturally support higher densities of vegetation. And really, you know, what we're, is, the complexity really can, can grow quickly. And, you know, in terms of the number of options or, or the, the amount of things you want to consider in terms of that, those landscape features. But the point being that those kinds of features, whether they enhance or inhibit spread, really do reinforce that notion of variability across a landscape. What, would you, what if you were to get together communities of a certain size and make uh, like fire prevention based HOAs or, you know, guidelines and like an individual house? I can see it'd be hard to make fire breaks for that just that house. But um, has anyone proposed that? Like, you own your house, that's fine, but you're in an area with 45 other homes that comprise this area that's prone to fire. Um, could anything be, again, imposed that would actually be helpful? Can a group of homeowners, let's say, you know, pool together resources to create a fire break so that next time there's a fire, all their stuff doesn't burn? Yes, there are there are instances where the, those kinds of arrangements are, are are taking place. Frankly, the community wildfire protection plans that are going in in so many areas are really trying to get at that. You know, a pooling of resources, or in some cases, a clearinghouse for grants, which you know is often the case, either federal or state. But the other other piece that that those kinds, if you're getting even more specific, like an HOA, like you you spoke about. One of the things that they can do in addition to managing vegetation around the house is try to impose, you know, new building standards, either through retrofitting or for new construction, where you're building with less flammable materials and also building it, you know, in a way that, you know, keeps, you know, fire sort of on, on, on you know, in the front, the forefront of your mind in terms of what, what it can do to a home. A lot of people think that, you know, fires, these, these wildfires just, you know, sit, build up a head of steam and then just kind of run right over housing developments. And that, that actually can happen. But the more common instances where homes are lost is where you have these massive ember showers that are created from the wildlands just adjacent to these, these homes. And so we can do better building that is you know, can be more resistant to those types of ember showers. So it can happen on both sides where you're managing vegetation better and, and then you're also doing better building practices. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, so what are the, I don't know, what are some of the big issues that you're focused in on that people may not be aware of in terms of understanding fire, controlling fire, et cetera? So one of the things that, that we have been working on for years is this idea of actually allowing wildfires to burn, you know, when you could otherwise put them out. 
and it's it's been controversial, you know, especially more lately. It's actually even entered the political sphere with some of our politicians sort of weighing in on it. We had a, a fire um, a couple of years back called the Tamarack Fire that was burning in the Sierra just south of Tahoe. And it, was, it wasn't totally let go. I, I don't think the, anyone would ever claim that that fire was just allowed to burn and they were just, you know, doing nothing. But it just didn't probably rank up priority wise in terms of what else was going on. So the inference that was made that, oh, they were just letting that fire burn. Well, it turns out that, you know, weather changed and the fire made a big run and, and burned into, into town and burned a few homes down. And it created all this controversy that that is a failed program, essentially. The idea of allowing, you know, naturally ignited wildfires to burn is, you know, again, is is failed. But the case, I don't know, the issues are, are complex, but there have been many areas where that has been the practice for decades, but those areas are, are isolated. They tend to be, you know, kind of higher elevation, surrounded by a lot of rock, you know, where the fires can't really break out of these, these big basins too easily and start to impact structures. So it's just kind of, it, it's kind of one of those things where there's a time and a place for that. And frankly, to be honest, I think we'd like to have that, those places where you could allow wildfires to burn, expand. I don't think we're, we're that there yet because of the condition of the forest, but I, I think it's going to be a tool that we, we're going to need, frankly, because there's just no way we can burn enough. We have so many barriers to doing prescribed burning where we intentionally do it and we do it at such small scales. We burn tens of acres at a time. Some, if in best cases, maybe a couple hundred. But if we can get, you know, wildfire and it's under relatively favorable conditions and it won't impact homes, that can burn thousands of acres in a, in a more positive manner. That That's going to be something that is kind of, that's where, again, like, like I said, where we'd like to head is, is allowing fires to burn in, while all the while, of course, protecting, you know, sort of life and property. Well, what are some of the, the misunderstandings you see from the public or from politicians or governments about what's needed? I think one of the old thoughts why we, you know, one of the, to go way back into wildfire sort of suppression, one of, one of the big drivers was the impact to timber. We, you know, we, we saw the forest as sort of, you know, the, our, you know, our supply of timber for, you know, a growing economy. And, and it still is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with managing the forest for timber. I, I, I don't have any problems with that. But it was the the main driver, right? It was timber was the main driver and fire was the was the main enemy. So it was, you know, it was decided long ago, we we're going to eliminate fire in order to protect this, this really important resource. So the timber focus is not nearly what it was in contemporary forests, at least in a lot of national forests. There's still plenty of private timberland where, where you know, producing timber is the main, the main thing. But on our national forests, the timber production has gone down so much that it's really, you know, we, we really are trying to do that multiple use mandate for, you know, for managing for wildlife and recreation and, and lots of other things. So the misconception is now that if you are allowing fire to burn, then you're destroying some of those resources, you know, again, timber being one of the main ones, but I just don't think that that's, that's not terribly relevant anymore because we don't harvest that much. And it's, so it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a direct impact, so to speak. So uh, that's one of the misconceptions. The other misconception, I think, is that we can eliminate fire from these forests if we just did enough, you know, enough 
uh, thinning. And I just think there's no way, there's no way we can, you know, we can get to enough ground, you know, treating it mechanically to, to really make a difference on its own. We are going to need fire, both prescribed and you know, naturally ignited wildfires to deal with this fuels problem, which is constant, right? It's like I was talking about before with the forest constantly growing, constantly producing, you know, dead needles and branches and stuff that break off in the wind and deposit on the floor. There's no, we can't do anything with a lot of that material with machines. So fire can do it for us and do it relatively cheaply. So I just, there's, there really isn't a solution where we can be, we can eliminate fire altogether. Yeah. Oh, makes sense. So what's the best way for people to learn more about your work, you know, and to, to go deeper if they wish to, where can they go? Yeah, that's a good point. Cause a lot of our, a lot of our work is in scientific papers and they're not terribly fun reads, <laughs> not terribly accessible, frankly, to a lot of people. But one of the things that we've been doing with a lot of our recent papers is creating these, these briefs, these like two pagers. Um, and they really do try to distill, you know, like a, 10 or 12 or 15 page scientific paper down into pretty basic, you know, basic language, you know, with a couple graphs and stuff. So that is one thing that we can get, you know, we do have on our website, on that Berkeley Forest website. And we're also doing videos, I think, too, with our with Berkeley Forest. One of our extension specialists, Rob York, has done a really nice job with, with some of these videos. In fact, we had a we had a, a wildfire that burned this summer onto our research forest. It burned a few hundred acres on our research forest overall about a 70,000 acre fire. And it was, it, it actually um, had some really interesting effects on our research forest, given some of our previous management, but Rob did a nice job of, of taking some videos right after the, the fire. And he's explaining some of the history of what we'd done on these forests. So I think these videos are something that we, we're going to probably start doing a little more of, you know, and that's another tool. I think that just your average person interested maybe in, in fire and forest management could pick up and, and, for, and maybe get some information relatively easily. Okay. Well, very good. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And like you said, it's an unusual topic, but uh, you know, I appreciate what you talked about. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Intelligent Threads is like no other product on the market. True next level biotechnology to help fix root cause issues associated with your body's structure. Try a patch, last for seven days and see for yourself. Intelligentthreads.com. For one or more discussions on Intelligent Threads, please listen to the podcast called It's a Body Structure Thing on Spotify and YouTube. Visit IntelligentThreads.com today. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.